We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. Hi, I want to welcome everyone this morning to this podcast, which is being hosted by the University of Maryland School of Public Policy Alumni Board. This was conceptualized and created by a former alum, Evan Papp, and as part of the alumni boards and the school's efforts to celebrate Back History Month and to uplift and spotlight things happening in the SPP community, we wanted to take time to introduce two new professors at SPB. Both Brandy Slaughter and Ebony Cooper-Jean are associate clinical professors at the school. So today I wanted to take time to learn more about their work, their professional milestones, and what they're looking forward to both as professionals and mentors within the school community. Uh, my name is Alicia Thompson. I am an alum of the school. I graduated in 2018. Uh, I'm going to be both a moderator as well as uh, painting the picture sort of of just how important uh, it is that these two new hires are here at the school and the difference it's going to make uh, and contrasting that uh, as appropriate with my time at the school. So now I want to hand the mic over to Brandy so she can introduce herself first and tell our audience a little bit more about who she is and what her work entails. And then we'll go to Ebony. So Brandy, if you don't mind, like introduce yourself. Sure. Um, Brandy Slaughter and I'm probably the newest, one of the newest hires to the School of Public Policy. It just started in November. And I have worked um, over a decade advocating for marginalized communities. Um, I started my career uh, working in the Ohio General Assembly and then um, thereafter have lobbied uh, for state government, lobbied for various nonprofits. Um, but my biggest joy is advocacy for children. Um, and so that's what I'm bringing um, to the school. Yeah, through the work um, of the Caribel Pizzagati Initiative, which I am also the director of, um, just really helping students um, find a path towards being um, strong advocates for children and just excited to be here. Awesome. And Ebony? Yes. Hi, I am also very new. Uh, officially uh, had this title uh, in January. Uh, prior to this, I served as an adjunct lecturer uh, through the School of Public Policy, so I had some familiarity with, um, with the school and the students. Um, my career started off actually in marketing and communications um, for nonprofit organizations, uh, which then led me to learning a bit more about the gaps in the sector as it related to um, 
black and brown uh, professionals as well as organizations that serve uh, those communities. Uh, and so um, teaching has always been something that I've loved. Um, I do training and facilitation um, outside of this work. Um, I'm happy to be here. I'm sure we'll talk more about it. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here and continuing to learn uh, about Maryland and, and the community that's here. Awesome. Now, something that's uh very great and interesting about the both of you is that you both attended HBCUs for your undergraduate education. And I'm actually curious um, from both of you, like what led you to choose to attend an HBCU? And are there any lessons from that that you feel that you are going to bring uh, to SPP students? Um, when you both formally start teaching in the fall? I'll start. Um, you know, my, in high school, I went to a private all-girls school, an influence school, um, a school that um, didn't, have the, didn't have the diversity when I attended. It's much um, better um, today. Um, I have to say that because I serve on their board now. But um, having um, participated in an experience, an all-white experience virtually, I wanted something very different for um, my college experience. Um, and so um, I wanted a place that would um, nurture me, but also challenge me to be my best black self. Um, and so, you know, Morgan, um, Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland is where I attended. And um, for me, it gave me all of that. Um, the ability to see um, black excellence um, was just so important, particularly at that period of time where you are um, becoming an adult and developing and growing, um, you need that nurturing and support. Um, I guess the lesson for folks from that and what I hope to bring is oftentimes uh, we, even us, uh, people of color, devalue our institutions. Um, and certainly um, Morgan is an excellent place with an excellent um, education, with a beautiful campus. Um, you know, at the all-girls school that I went to, the expectation was that you um, went to an Ivy League um, school, you know, that that's, so I kind of broke the mode a little bit. Um, the only acceptable HBCU was Spelman, you know, a few girls before me, I was probably about maybe the third in the whole history of the school that selected an HBCU. And for me, it was just important to nurture my soul, my spirit, uh, my culture, um, as I developed and, and grew into adulthood. Yeah. Yes. So uh, interestingly, Brandy, we share something else. I went to all girls school as well uh, in New York. And in what is up with the all girl private school? My parents thought it was better. Power. Right. My parents <laughs> thought it was better for our lives. But anyway, um, that's a different podcast. Um, you know, and the expectation there in New York is that, you know, I will say this for a lot of us, it was pushing them towards state schools. Uh, Thankfully, I come from a long history of uh, college-educated family members. Uh, both my parents went to HBCUs. Um, my mom actually went to A&T, which is where I went. Aggie pride. It has to be done. Um, and I didn't want to go there. I was like, I don't want to do anything that my mom did. I'm going to chart my own path. And I went on a college tour uh, my junior year in high school, and that was it for me. It didn't help that uh, we had a really cute uh, tour guide, which I share with students, but I was like, oh, if he is the standard, I am here, yes. Um, but my time at A&T was, um, 
it was transformative. And I, I, I've learned that more and more uh, in my adult life um, and how my paths with classmates and uh, schoolmates just continue to, to cross. And so in the classroom, and I'm here now, so I'm, I'm, I'm teaching this semester. Um, and one thing I, I share with my, my other uh, Black female friends who have taught um, or who teach in academia and went to HBCUs is that the expectation for excellence it's immediate, right? Like there's no, um, there's no mediocrity. And so that's what I expect from my students. And, you know, sometimes I'll get feedback that she's really hard and this, that, and the third, but the truth of the matter is that's the only expectation I have. Right. And that is coming from a black school. Um, and so I think for me, that black experience, um, it definitely, you know, um, fills me with pride um, and excitement and love and joy. But what I got from my professors, it changed my life. I, I don't think I could ever, um, I, I can't imagine what my collegiate career would have been like having a classroom or having all white teachers. I, I don't even, I, I can't even, I can't even digest that. So for me, um, standing before my students as a black woman means a lot. Um, for the content that I'm teaching um, and hopefully uh, in their trajectories. And so what I bring into the classroom is the expectation of excellence, which I absolutely received um, at my HBCU. And I, it's just something that I carry and it, it's not going anywhere. Awesome. And out of curiosity, you are also a member of the Delta Sigma <laughs> Theta. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> Uh, you, you know, no shade, but I'm a legacy for AKA. So, you know, we're all sisters here. <laughs> and I'm curious if, uh, and, then, and then I'll, you know, similar question to Brandy later. I'm curious if that or something else was a, um, a pivotal moment that brought you into sort of the nonprofit and philanthropy space, or was there... Or did you always know that that was kind of the direction that you were going to end up going in? Or did something in your college experience kind of lead you down that pathway? Yeah. Because they, because obviously I, I feel like um, for the divine nine, it often gets not lost just how philanthropic yeah. we are. Yeah. So it, uh, I'm just curious if that connected back to, some of the work that you're doing now and kind of pushed you in that direction? I mean, I, I think in, in part, I mean, you, you had to have some sort of community service and it wasn't something that I just picked up just to apply um, to be part of the organization. Um, my mom's also a Delta. And, um, but for me, I, it was my college chapter, right. That made the difference for me um, and sort of the larger goals uh, and mission of Delta, um, happened to, to just get to know some really awesome women who were in the chapter at the time. And I knew, um, I knew enough about Delta to know that that was going to be the women that I wanted to be affiliated with outside of the four years, which I think is also different. Um, not, I think I know it's different from a PWI here. Most of the young ladies who are part of sororities, um, are just doing it for the four years versus our, you know, our legacy is, you know, beyond that. So, and thinking about this as the lifelong commitment, um, it was always part of, of who I am. Both my parents are social workers, so the element of community was always there. Um, you know, going to church and serving and, um, you know, even 
I got older, I did serve with my my chapter in New York. You know, we did, you know, Thanksgiving food kitchens and serving and, you know, we have different programs that we work with young ladies. So it's always just been a part of my life woven in, in different ways. And so um, I would say, you know, being part of being part of Delta Sigma Theta in, in undergrad was definitely a goal, um, but one that whose values I matched, right? I didn't have to sort of find them. It was just sort of an automatic, you know, matching. And um, it wasn't something that I that I needed to do. It was just an, an addition to my life um, that I knew that I could add to the organization. So. Absolutely. And Brandy, you have your Juris Doctor. And I'm curious, there's a little bit of a, a gap between uh, the bachelors and the Juris Doctor. And I'm curious, um, because your work is so focused on um, child advocacy, family advocacy, and foster care work, um, which ironically, my, my mom has her PhD in clinical psychology, and that is her bread and butter um, community that she works with. So it like, since you went to Morgan, she works at Kennedy Krieger. So like that's, so I'm just curious what kind of led you down the pathway uh, specifically into child advocacy and family advocacy. And if that was a pivotal thing that led you down the path in college or something that you really picked up as part of your um, getting your education as a lawyer. Yeah. So I think um, service is just embedded in who I am and a, a care and concern for marginalized communities, you know, my entire life. Um, it's just been a part of, you know, I am also in ministry, so I feel like it's a call and it's just a part of um, who I am and who I was raised to be. Um, but I think the pivotal moment for me is um, after undergrad, um, you know, I had a political science undergrad and um, major, and you can't necessarily find work as a political scientist at a undergraduate level. Um, so, you know, you need to provide for yourself. Um, I started my career as a social worker, um, working for a settlement house um, in Columbus in the community that I grew up in, uh, which was a, a poor community, um, crack infested. And as I um, saw clients come in the door, um, you're paying light bills, you're giving food, uh, but you keep seeing them over and over again. And, you know, for me, that became difficult because it's like, how can I teach you how to fish? How can I prepare your family to be stable? Um, and I just thought that the best way to do that was through systems reform. Um, so I shifted my focus. I was actually in a graduate program at Ohio State in social work. Um, because I think I, I thought I wanted to be um, go the clinical path as well. Um, but I shifted because I just thought that there was something wrong for systems um, and um, decided on law school instead. Um, while in law school is, you know, I went to law school at night, um, but worked in the General Assembly in, during the day. Um, so I was able to see how um, policy um, represented us and didn't represent us and um, had some strong mentorship um, you know, in that period to where um, I just couldn't walk away from kids. As it relates to my law degree, though, however, um, I went to law school thinking, okay, I do social work. I've done social work up until this point. I want to do contracts. Give me taxes, give me property, give me something that does not have the drama of people. Um, but as I kind of walk through my experience there, I recognize that I, I'm gifted for this work around children and families and that. Um, you know, some of my colleagues just really did not have an appreciation for 
what children and families um, experiences are. Um, and so um, I opted to just kind of course correct and get right back in line with, you know, what I'm purpose to do. Um, and so for me, um, my experience in the legislature just showed me over and over again how absent um, people of color are from the discussions, how absent um, impacted people are as part of the discussions. And so um, I've stayed the course uh, around children and families because I think that's where I can add the most value. Absolutely. Uh, out of curiosity, um, I'm curious what led you both to sort of, transition's not the right word, but um, decide that with your practitioner work, you also want to now teach. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what kind of led you both down the pathway in your interest in sort of mentoring the next generation of both policy leaders and philanthropists uh, in Ebony's case. So either of you can answer that first. Um, I, I can go, you know, uh, Auntie Oprah asked a question, like, who are you at the core? And when I heard her ask that question, I thought to myself, who am I at the core? And that's a teacher. Um, my when my closest aunt was an educator growing up and I was like nine helping her grade papers, right? So to me, it just always was fun. I, I marveled at the way that she stood before her students and she had such a, you know, bold voice and, you know, caught the students' attention and, you know, commanded um, the room. And, you know, she's also an orator. So teaching me how to do public speaking and um, my, my mom ended up going into the education system as a social worker. So again, being around education and education system, um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I, when I left undergrad. And so I started working, uh, at uh, MTV and BET. So I had a very, um, you know, corporate career, uh, fun corporate career doing production and shows and all that fun stuff. But when, um, then Senator Obama was running for um, for president. I, I knew that I wanted to make an impact, and it was something kept burning, you know, itching at me, like, hey, you know, this this life's got to be better than just you know, running, you know, running shows. And so, I knew that going to nonprofit was something that I wanted to do, and still having a difficult time finding my footing. I often found myself in spaces of teaching. Um, as an adjunct or doing trainings um, for nonprofits. And it was something I always, always wanted to do. Like I, I've just, I, I love teaching. I love being in the classroom. I love the creativity of it. Um, I love the autonomy of it. Uh, and I just, I know that as a practitioner, that is what I can bring as one of the, the best assets to students. Um, oftentimes, I found myself having professors who didn't have the real world experience. And so they were teaching from a textbook. And so when I did have professors, when I went to NYU um, for my first graduate degree, I remember actually a professor was an old colleague of mine at MTV and it was such real world that it hit better. And so at that moment, I knew that being able to do both was going to be important. And so um even though I'm I'm here full time at um, at the university, I still have to have that practice as a part of my life in order for me to feel as though my teaching is impactful. So it, it's almost like they're um, 
they're not mutually exclusive for me. Like it, it's a package. Like I learn and then I teach. I teach and then I learn. You know, so it's it's sort of a it's it's a package deal for me. And I don't think I would feel fully whole if I wasn't doing one or the other. Absolutely, Brandy. You know, um, I was sought out to teach. You know, at the higher education level, just because of my reputation for this work and um, just being a thought leader in this space. And so the, the first place I taught, I taught as an adjunct in Cleveland, um, I was teaching some graduate classes and it just something just came alive in me, just this ability to you know, impart this knowledge for folks that were, are gonna take what I know even further. Um, and so to come here um, at the university and you know, I think the most um, exciting part about this opportunity or the thing that made me move across the country um, to Maryland is just building this army of children's advocate. I mean, just uh, equipping a new generation um, that will carry the work of kids and families, um, particularly at a time where we're seeing so many of the giants and the champions that are retiring or, you know, unfortunately passing away or or just seeking other um, things to um, invest their time because of the pandemic. Um, being here and, um, and you know, and I'm particularly interested in and I'm hopeful that um, through these classes, we'll be able to have um, a more diverse um, set of leaders um, that we can prepare for this work. Awesome. And since you perfectly segued, um, Ebony, I'm curious what sort of drew you to working at SPP specifically um, did you have any goals in mind? And is there, uh, do you have any thoughts about how you see your role as a Black educator and the impact you hope to have inside and outside of the classroom? So interestingly, just a couple of weeks ago, I found an email that um, one of my moms from church uh, who used to work here at the university, um, she knew or knows uh, Dr. Harris. And this was back, I don't know, maybe in 13 and she'd sent a note and um, Nina responded and it just sort of kind of got lost. And Jen Littlefield also responded on that thread. Fast forward, um, I was actually reconnected to SPP through the Do Good Institute. And so my work um, with my own nonprofit, that's how I got reintroduced. So when I found that email, I had to think to myself, wow, okay, what did what did Dr. Bryant see? Because policy um, is not my background, but the the topic of nonprofit leadership, development, fundraising, that is. And so those that intersectionality in the work that a lot of nonprofit organizations do um, through their work, they may advocate, et cetera, was sort of how my path got here. Um, and admittedly, I was a little nervous. Like I, even though I live in D.C., policy is not my thing, you know, lobbying, all of the things that many people move here, you know, or come to DC for was not me. And so I um, was, you know, wondered how do I bring value to, to a school that's so steeped in that? And so I'm still learning that, that piece. Um, but what I have found in um, the two going on three years um, being here is that the presence of a black woman is making a difference, right? The very presence of teaching a course, um, I teach one um, required course and the other two are, um, or three are electives. Um, but nonetheless, the students, even if they come from other schools, again, the first time 
many of them have been in a room with a black woman as a teacher, which to me is still blows my mind, you know, um, you know, as, as early as what pre-K, you know, my, my teachers were black, you know, high school, middle school, et cetera. Um, fun fact, 80% of teachers in the United States are white women. Um, and knowing that I had to think back and, and even the, the teachers I have had and the ones that stood out to me are the black women, you know, with the exception of my kindergarten and first grade teacher. But anyway, um, but the teachers that I still have relationships with that I gravitated towards were the ones that looked like me. Um, in seminary, I was intentional about taking all the classes that the black professors took because I wanted to learn and understand, um, the Bible and theology from a perspective that in some way, shape or form, I was going to be able to connect with. Right. Um, and so that doesn't mean that there's not value in, in having other teachers, but I think in a dominant culture and society, we often hear from those perspectives. And so when I'm able to come into the classroom and give a different experience and a different perspective, uh, it it does far more than than I expected that it would. Um, you know, we can teach data and numbers all day, but when it comes to the issues that impact us in this school and the things that our students are hopefully going to influence and change, it makes a difference um, from having folks that look like Brandy and I um, stand before them to be able to teach. Now, whether they're receptive of it or not in the beginning, um, that's a whole other story. I can't help that. Um, but what I can do is, again, expect that excellence and um, and teach the best of my ability and, and teach from the space that I know and I know being a black woman from my experience. So, yeah. Uh, Brandy, I want to give you a chance to add anything or respond before I sort of add my little two cents as a former student and, you know, uh, <laughs> also echoing, uh, you know, just how important it is. I feel that you've been added to the faculty. So I want to give you a chance to you know, add anything before I add my little two cents. <laughs> yeah, you know, representation matters. And for me, I think, um, I just hope my presence um, encourages other students of color to um, join this work, um, become um, members of this school. Um, you know, I don't know, I think it was kind of lost on me before I got here, how significant um, Ebony and my presence is in the school, you know, and how historic um, it is. And so, um, you know, I've always been in environments where I have been one of the only um, Black people d demonstrating um, leadership uh, of some sort. And so I didn't, you know, I thought a an environment like College Park would be more diverse. So it was kind of, um, you know, surprising. But I hope my presence um, will show to other students that are thinking about what their future career paths might be. I hope my presence is something that encourages them to pursue uh, public policy and um, you know, I, I also look at uh, for the students of color who are already here and already studying, you know, um, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the talent intent. Um, and I think it's my job to develop black leadership um, and model, um, you know, what black excellence looks like. And so um, I, I do hope that um, my experience here and, and being here um, is an example to other students, but also helps to develop them and also expand beyond a 10th. You know, we all have a role to play um, in our community. Um, and, and that's what I'm hopeful uh, to accomplish while I'm here. You know, I, this is my first semester and, um, you know, I still, I don't have the experience that Ebony has just yet about, I can't give a, 
uh, synopsis of how I've been received in the classroom, um, but I just hope that uh, it brings more students to this work uh, because now, unlike any other time, uh, we really need leadership um, as it relates to systemic change and our laws and legislation. I would say that, uh, you know, even if maybe your students are, you know, coming up to you both after class and, you know, vocalizing it, I went to the school at a time where um, I didn't pick a specialization uh, because there weren't people within the specializations where I could get uh, certain diverse perspectives. So for example, imagine taking, you know, an environmental policy class and never discussing environmental racism. Mm having entire like and i mean like on a boat it was it was a global class but pointing out that poor communities were being more severely impacted but never talking about the ethnic or racial implications mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. that just sort of just being like it's a thing that's happening and then we're and then and moving then move on, on. <laughs> yeah and then move on or you know imagine taking an education class and never bringing up race mm, at all mm, and mm. just and you're sitting there as a black student wow. and you know and i'm from baltimore born and raised um and you're and i'm having classmates just saying like well why don't the schools just go buy the the laptops <laughs> and i'm just like oh yeah <laughs> you know like you know you're some of the policies and not uh you know professors not being able to make mm. that connection that like it's you're you're framing this argument as if poor inner city schools don't want to help their students mm. when in fact like the policies are actually reinforcing a negative cycle that they can't adhere if they don't have money like you can't expect a school to buy and get all these new laptops if they're like don't have any money and then you end up punishing the school which continues the cycle that's a problem so there were many times i was in the classroom and that perspective, you ended up having students of color and black students being mini educators and being like, well, guys, like, just just to add in, like, the, we need to have a little bit of a more nuanced discussion. Or, you know, Brandy, for your work with foster care, it, like, imagine having a discussion and the, the health aspect and the housing aspect are not connected together. Mm housing policy is health policy so it's little things like that where or it for you know ebony in the philanthropy space imagine like having a discussion and no one in the room is either from the community knows anyone from the community or you have someone like myself who does a lot of work in baltimore and i'm going up to residents and they're getting frustrated because you're asking the same questions that you asked last year and they're wondering why they keep telling you the same problem. And it's like, why should we keep participating in philanthropic surveys when we're just telling you the same problem over and over again? It's, it can get, it, it creates a disconnect between the work and the community that you're trying to impact. So I want to personally say that even if, you know, you're not having students run up to you after class and saying, thank God you're here it definitely makes it easier so that your students don't have to end up being educators and, and 
mm-hmm. you know, accidentally being the authority when they're only talking also from their own personal experiences. Um, so I definitely want to make sure you know you are very well appreciated, even if people aren't running up to you afterwards. Now I do, you know, it is, you know, Black History Month. So I do want to ask like a couple of thought-based questions. Um, Ebony in particular, a lot of your research and your work is cent- centers a lot around Black philanthropy and Black millennial philanthropy. I'm curious why that interests you uh, in particular and how you feel, because I know uh, both of you are women of faith and that has greatly influenced everything in your life. So I'm curious how you see if philanthropy has evolved evolved with inside the Black community. Because for me, you know, most of my philanthropy is through, you know, the church. So I'm, I'm curious if, you know, in, philanthrop- in philanthropy and Black millennial philanthropy, why that interests you and sort of the connection between sort of, are we getting to a point in philanthropy where like the church is still playing the more pivotal role or we're just trying to find additional avenues to increase community participation. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Okay. Well, how much time do we have? Um, (laughs) So I will, um, I will try to take this in, um, in two small bites. Um, the first part about why it interests me, um, I I sort of move away from the term millennial because people think, you know, 12-year-olds are millennials. I'm like, no, that's that's not it. Like, we are whole adults. We have children and spouses and all the things, right? Um, and so when I started this work um, in 2009, I, my peers, we were doing similar work. We were just getting started with um, serving on boards. We, um, a, a lot of my friends happened to also be part of sororities and fraternities. So we were already serving. Um, we were not quite there on the financial piece, but I was seeing that the service and the work that was being done was not often um acknowledged in the same way. And really what um, what pulled my my coat is a research report that came out. Um, and actually, Derek and I are, are good colleagues. But I remember when Derek Feldman came out with his millennial report, um, and it included uh, philanthropy and giving, and it did not talk about Black folks at all. And I remember sending that email like, I didn't know him, but I was like, hey, um, so something's missing here. And that is what pushed me to do my uh, first research report when I was at NYU. So even though I was uh, in, doing uh, corporate communications, I focused on communicating to Black millennials um, for nonprofits and giving. And so because I knew that there was a difference in why we gave, what we gave, and how we gave, I just wanted to you know, get some um, you know, hard data on that. And so what I did find is that many of us our first experiences with giving were rooted in the church. Um, I found that education is the number one area that we want to contribute and give to. And equally as important as finance, it's also leadership and time. And so serving on boards, serving um, in in ways where our um, expertise and leadership and thought leadership is celebrated are ways that are important for us. And so those elements, those findings have carried me through my work. And as my peers um, sort of 
close and, and afar, right? Um, as our worlds have changed, um, whether it's you know marriage, children, etc., so have our giving. Um, giving areas and the way in which, you know, we can give. So now we're at a space and place where, you know, we can give more financially, but at the, at the basis, what hasn't changed is what we want to give to. Right. And so uh, when I have conversations with, you know, largely, you know, ally organizations and they want to diversify and get more folks of color, the idea or the word philanthropy doesn't differ from community to community. It's just how you have acknowledged philanthropy from an old white and wealthy perspective is not the same way that we have. And in fact, that word is still, you know, foreign, right? Because we don't call what we do philanthropy. We just do what we do, right? We take care of. And I tell that to my students, like even when institutional philanthropy forgets about us and just gives us the 2%, right, of those institutional dollars to our organizations, we still take care of ourselves. We always have and we always will. And so I think that's the different piece that um, development practitioners in particular have to understand is that with or without the institution of philanthropy, we're still going to take care of in our way. And so finding uh, ways to understand that language of our giving is important. Um, and so that's sort of how I, I got into it and focusing on really my peer group and helping folks to understand how to engage us in the giving is something um, that was important. So that's kind of the teacher part of me, you know, like we're giving and we're doing things. You're just not talking or having the right conversations with us. Right. Um, and then from a church perspective, um, I ended up in, in, in ministry. God made it very clear to me one day, I want you to help save my churches, right. In particular black churches. So um, again, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but for many of our churches, our churches are dying. Um, and so prior to COVID, they were dying for a number of reasons. And, you know, in COVID, I don't say we're in a post-COVID place. I don't think we are. But now, you know, they're dying for different reasons. And so given all of the... Um, stewardship, right? So when I'm talking in the faith space, I refer to philanthropy um, more from a stewardship perspective um, with our churches is helping to teach us how to do that in a better way. Um, my uh, capstone work at in seminary was around the, the very idea of Black churches stewarding better, stewarding differently, um, so that giving is not 95%, 99% in some churches on Sunday with offering, right? How can we get out of our own boxes and get out of our own way in bringing money uh, into the storehouse, if you will? So there are grant opportunities, you know, there are, you know, crowdfunding opportunities, you know, there are capital campaigns that we don't have to wait to wait until, you know, we have a building that's falling apart, you know, so there are ways that we can steward our members. Um, and so all of this, uh, all of the, the learning that I have is now um, turning that back into the, back towards the church um, and helping us to think differently. And so where we are as a church um, is, I, I think, um, is, is, is with the times, right? It's a, it's a cultural shift that many churches are taking. And so I, I think we are still seeing that, um, whether it's the church is using Givelify to give, whether, you know, they're thinking of doing ministry and worship services differently to appeal to a different audience. Um, so I, I think church is at the basis where many of us find our giving, um, but I think how we express it might be different. Um, and so depending on who you are, 
you you might get from a different different place, right? Um, but I think we, as a Black community, recognize that church is kind of the first place where we uh, were able to see giving done. Um, and even if it's not church, it might have you know, been through a mosque, as, as many of us um, also in the, the um, Muslim faith. So I, I think that giving, right, is something that that, that is part of who we are as, as a people. And Brittany, I, you know, want to give you a chance to also respond to that, but I want to, uh, as you're talking, also think about, um, you know, Ebony mentioned like how coming into our community and how the language is different and how we experience giving differently. And I'm curious, um, in a lot of your work as policy and advocacy, so I'm wondering if there's also sort of a, um, a language barrier in terms of, uh, community access and um, getting uh, our community to come out or to support or to lobby. Um, but also in your work, have you find, do you find that equity issues start arising more during policy formulation or policy implementation? Um, because both of you are, are working uh, systematically in, in different spaces to sort of hopefully eventually close equity gaps. So I'm curious, Brandy, if you feel that there's also that sort of barrier that's a similar barrier that's incurring in policy work and advocacy and where that breakdown is more happening in the space. Yeah, you know, it's it's almost a full circle of this conversation. You know, we were talking about um, as Black um professors and how uh, students that are of color might feel um, more willing or apt to um, ask questions or just feel relieved that um, that presence is there. I think it's similar in the policy space in that uh, my experience has been, whether it's implementation, whether it's policy development, um, we aren't participating. And I think we don't feel welcome to participate because the elected officials don't look like us. They don't understand us. But it's um, paradoxical in that you have people making decisions about you without knowing anything about your experience uh, and how these policies will impact you. And so um, for me, um, you know, your, your, your question is whether there's um, um, equity issues on either side. I mean, it's both um, because um, while bills are going through committee, um, elected officials need to hear your voice. And then when they make it to the administrative level, um, where you're codifying administrative rules and law, um, even lesser so is there people um, of color participating. And um, and actually, I think that's a, a, a place where you can have even more um, impact in how programs that impact folks are rolled out. Um, and so, you know, it's what do we need to do to get people there? I mean, you know, certainly oftentimes um, committees are held um, in the middle of day where people have to work and people have to care for their families. And, you know, so making just the process more accessible. Um, in Ohio, where I um, come from, we um, did these hearings all across the state around redistricting, around drawing the legislative maps. Um, and people of color just really struggled getting to these forums until we had to really uh, press upon the legislature to have some evening sessions, have some Saturday sessions, because the people that are impacted 
are working. They can't get here. And further in Ohio, um, Ohio doesn't allow for electronic um, testimony. I mean, you can watch the hearings, but you can't participate and give um, any of your uh, feedback through the hearings electronically. And so uh, a lot of pressure and to um, allow just the process to be more accessible. And I think also, you know, people are juggling a lot of things in their life and helping people understand that these things are important, these things matter. You know, yes, you know, paying your light bill matters, but also voting and being civically engaged matters. You know, reaching out to your elected officials, all of those things matter. Um, and I think there is a gap in our community and um, we have a long way to go um, to make sure that people are watching and, and participating. Now, I will say, um, when we look at George Floyd and we look at all of the protests, it is now taking that same energy and shifting it to policy. You know, the protest was important, um, it's significant. Now, how do we equip young people? How do we equip folks that engaged in that work to now go to where the changes happen, where solutions are um, built and created? And so, um, you know, I think those are ways that you um, address equity. You know, get us engaged, get us registered to vote, <laughs> get us holding our, our elected officials accountable. Um, and helping us understand the process. You know, they are they they have a limit of knowledge. Without your input, they won't know how it impacts you. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in both of your work, you both have to sort of, you know, because there's not a lot of us, uh, you know, at the upper echelons of the work, you end up, you know, being representatives um, of the Black community. And um, I don't know how we have time to answer this question, but I feel like equity work has um, become some become very racially coded, meaning that, you know, when someone hears of like equity, they have an image in their mind of what that means. And I'm curious because, Brandy, you've worked across both aisles and uh, Ebony, I am sure you've had to code switch uh, in spaces. And I'm curious if semantically um, you, especially now, have had to make adjustments in how you get people on board uh, to support equity work. And if you've had to stop sort of saying, oh, we're working towards equity, um, usually I like to call a spade a spade, but I'm curious if you've had to adjust your speaking and teaching styles to uh, make your message more palatable, acceptable, and get more people on board with addressing equity gaps in the spaces that you both work in. Hmm. You know, I um, what drew me to the work of advocacy was the fact that every system that impacts kids, uh, you can't name one. Um, I challenge you to name one. Email me if you can find one that doesn't negatively impact children of color. I mean, you know, it just... So that's what drew me to this work. Um, and I think um, in my space, people are more thoughtful of the need to um, call out the racial racial disparities, you know, make sure that policy is disaggregating data uh, so that we know very clearly how it impacts children. But I am also from a state where um, the politics are um, super majority Republican. Um, and conservative leaning. And so for me, um, I think what has given me success in this work um, is the ability to speak um, from Republican values. 
communicate these ideas of equity in a, a frame that they can understand. I think another example is building champions. You know, I don't always have to carry the whole um, Black community on my back. Um, sometimes you can find folks that can be your champion. And I'll give an example. In Ohio, we were ranked dead last for infant mortality for several years. And people of color had been, you know, advocating and at the state house and asking for money and for years and years and years. Uh, and it fell on deaf ears until uh, a Caucasian lady, a senator, finally heard it from one of her colleagues, a black colleague, and said, huh, like it finally hit her, you know, like, oh, so these black babies are dying because of all of these reasons. Um, she was able to champion the cause, get us across the um, finish line with several pieces of legislation and also um, some financial support um, to kind of help us, um, you know, decrease our incidents um, in our state. And so, you know, sometimes we think, um, I hear a lot of folks talk about how we're tired, you know, like, why do we have to explain and why do we have to, you know, have this burden? Uh, you know, I'm going to always, um, you know, dig deep and, and go across being tired, you know, for the sake of people in my community. Um, but beyond that, if you can develop um, people that can understand and um, cultivate a, a space where within their sphere of influence, um, they can also get people to stand up on behalf of black and brown children, black and brown families. I mean, I think that's a way um, to reduce this kind of um, equity piece. And I think, um, you know, to get some focus on, you know, the why these policies matter and why we have to do these things for black and brown kids. Ebony? Have I changed? <laughs> have I had to code switch? If you know me, the answer is no. Um, I have always been authentically who I am. Um, and my, my, my dad always says, I am not likable. I'm either lovable or not lovable. Like there's no in between. Um, and I mean, of course, you know, with, with age and, and, and sort of grace, you, you learn how to sort of soften where you need to. Um, but I think when it comes to areas around equity um, and blackness, that has been something that has been consistent in my life. Um, it's worked in my favor sometimes. Um, and sometimes it hasn't, you know, to be quite honest. When I worked in Ohio um, on the Obama campaign, uh, it didn't go so well because I was very clear about how these young white kids were treating those in our community. There were two offices, one on the black side of Youngstown and one on the white side of Youngstown, one that had resources and one that didn't. And when our folks came into the main office on the white side of town, they were treated a certain kind of way and I wasn't standing for it. And so, you know, that was well before I moved to D.C. and then knowing how political and, you know, uh, PC certain people have to be, um, you know, speaking the political language, which is probably why, you know, me working in politics wouldn't go so well. Um, but but I think that I have not backed away from um, saying what needs to be said. Uh, and so, you know, even serving on boards, um, you know, I, I recently had to step back off of a board because their definition of, you know, being anti-racist was, you know, taking some trainings and, you know, uh, boasting numbers of folks they hired. But the the pipeline to success, the equity was not there. And you're hearing this from Black staff members, but yet you're still pushing the same agenda. And so for me, 
code switching doesn't work really well. Um, I I do understand and I actually have a great deal of respect for my friends and colleagues who are able to step into those more political spaces um, and sort of speak that language and do it really well um, and sort of keeping uh, emotions, if you will, out of it. Um, but I, I am who I am, right? I'm emotionally driven. My what do you, Enneagram, um, you know, is driven by that, my strength finder, all of the things constantly remind me that passion is is what's behind um, that. And, and it's taken me a while to be quite honest to accept that because when there's so much pushback from it, you know, you're like, well, is something wrong with me? Should I not speak up? Should I not? Um, but then recognizing that using it, you know, to my advantage and then using it and learning and understanding it as a strength area um, and knowing Perhaps maybe this not may not be the best time. I think for me, it's more about timing and and learning that piece um, and learning what I have learned. I, I can say is that in the classroom, um, especially here at Maryland, is being able to present um, hot button issues, hot button topics because we do have students who are both conservative and liberal and all things in between. Um, and what I have learned is not necessarily giving my students the answers, but allowing them to talk through it themselves to come to their own mm-hmm. conclusions. Um, because what I found early on is that when we, because of our experiences, because we are passionate about certain things, we can come into the classroom with sort of our own perspective and students who may not agree kind of push back. But giving them space to talk through it themselves, right? They often end up in a space where you're like, I'm proud of you all for doing that, right? Um, <laughs> and so it works better with, with students than it does with adults, unfortunately, sometimes. But um, but yeah, code switching um, doesn't really work for me. Uh, it, it just It's just not something I'm very good at. Um, but I've, I've definitely, uh, I've worked on timing, if you will. That's probably more of a thing mm. for me is just, uh, this may not be the best time or maybe I won't send that email right now. Let me just wait, um, you know, but when we do have that conversation, it will be good. It's going to be good when we talk, you know, so just, you know, fi- finding those times um, has, has been more uh, successful for me because uh, of code switching. I'm just not good at yeah. And as, you know, a final closeout, I did want to give you the opportunity for you both to say um, if there is any uh, either teaching, personal or professional goals that you want to accomplish while you're at SPP. I will yield my time to Ebony because honestly, I am so new to the organization. You know, this is not <laughs> I'm still learning my lay of the land. You know, I mean, it took me 30 minutes to find my classroom the first time, you know, I walked across the yard. So, um, you know, in terms of goals, you know, I, of course, have this big goal of perhaps having this this initiative become a center, um, become recognized across the country for the work that we do around children and and families, Uh, how we uplift uh, Carabelle Pizzagotti, who uh, was an African-American woman who was an advocate um, strongly for children in foster care and in the education system. Um, So for me, it's honoring her legacy um, and making this bigger and better and greater. But I don't know what bigger, better and greater looks like just yet. I need to, you know, get a little bit of time to, you know, really think it through. But I would love for our students to tackle big problems and find solutions. You know, if you're a fellow 
um, and involved, you know, you tackle a problem every year and you lobby um, the state legislature or Congress. You know, th those are the moments that I've been most proud of in my career is helping young people find their voice and participate in these systems. And so, you know, I would like to see that happen um, here at, at the campus. And, you know, I, hey, maybe research. I don't know. Um, you tell me, Felicia, what do you think, you know, I should do that would be meaningful? Because uh, I'm still kind of figuring that out. I, you know, happy to talk with you about that offline because there's there's plenty of uh, good research gaps if you want to add your two cents uh, to improving those areas, Ebony. Um, same with with uh, with Brandy. I mean, the the two years that I've been teaching are virtual, so um, I too took took me forever to find classes and things like that. Um, I think being in person is is making a, a huge difference. Um, I would like to to see us take this uh, milestone uh, moment of bringing in more Black folks into the department um, and making some long-term actionable uh, commitments um, that help sort of the larger space. So I'm, I'm big on industry and sector. Um, and as I'm still learning academia, but you know, are there places and spaces for, you know, a Blacks in Policy conference? Are there opportunities for us to have speaker series? You know, because I, I think that the school deserves to, you know, be at an equal space and footing as other policy schools or public affairs schools. Um, I think we we absolutely should be there. Um, and uh, to Brandy's point of helping students find their voices and knowing that they have value, I think those types of uh, industry sector wide opportunities um, create network and sort of help to build the reputation of the school outside of, you know, the dominant space, you know, so when black folks think about policy or brown folks think about policy, they think about us because, you know, like, oh, yeah, I went, you know, I heard about that speaking series or that conference, you know, my professor sent me to was right here on campus, you know, so I think that that I would at least where I am now, thinking about how we can make a splash in our space um, to show our long-term commitment, um, you know, in action uh, by having us here, right? And so what does having us here mean? And it, it means doing what we do and, you know, stretching our arms back into the community and bringing folks in. Um, that's what I would like to see. It's still early. Um, and I'll come back next year this time and I'll probably have a different answer, but... Yeah, mini plug though, you both will be in different offices by this time next year because we'll have a brand new building. So you'll you know, have your lay and pick up the land. So you definitely have to refine uh, certain classrooms and offices. You'll be in a new building. Um, I want to thank you both so much for your time um, and graciously um, lending your voice um, to this and, you know, introducing yourself to potentially all past alumni who can get more excited and we can, you know, get uh, alumni of color back into participation now that they know you exist, but also any incoming students now can know you exist and maybe sign up for any classes you're teaching in the fall. So I want to thank you both so much and have, I know you both have class literally right after this. So have a great class and a great rest of your day. Thank you, Delisha. See you later, Brandy. All right. Bye-bye.